from the authors of Author Masterminds. This is Mysterious. Mystery surrounds us every day. Join us and listen to true stories of mystery, from human behavior to nature and the physical environment to paranormal experiences. The stories are true, even if we can't explain them. From a small town in Utah to a mysterious mountain in Africa, mysteries fill the world around us. In this episode, I will share three mysteries. Hello, my name is Carl Douglas. I'm a retired neurosurgeon and I write with gripping realism after having lived such a life. I grew up in a very small town in the mountains where we seldom had big things happen, and very rarely anything mysterious. I'm going to tell you about a mystery that has stayed indelibly in my memory all my life. My dad was the only doctor in the town of about 600 people, and a county of about 5,000. He knew everyone and everything that took place in the town, the county seat, and the county. In those dear dead days beyond recall, he knew every person in the county by full name and by the back of their heads. We were one of the few families who had a telephone. Our number was 381. We did not have a radio, and TV was a decade away. I think I remember the big parade the county threw when rolled toilet paper became available in the store. I don't remember ever hearing about but one scandal and mystery, and I'm going to tell you about them both, if you want. The medical practice became too much for my dad, so he hired a new partner, a considerably younger man. He was a good doctor and shortly became popular. It so happened that he did not care for his wife, either for her looks or for her demeanor. I have it on good authority that he started stepping out with the beautiful wife of a schoolteacher. As the religious folks of the community would say, she had a well-tabernacled spirit. The new doctor became fast friends with the local high school principal, the mayor, and most important of all, the longtime sheriff. In those days, the sheriff was pretty much the town prosecutor, judge, jury, and incarcerator. What he said was the law for most circumstances. I was 11 years old, liked the new doctor, was impressed with well-tabernacled spirits, so I knew everyone in the drama. One evening, my dad took me aside and told me I was going to have another one of his growing-up experiences. He liked to take me to see some difficult medical problems and to share the sorrows. Also, I would grow up to be a doctor, and I would not be a sissy. Nothing could have prepared me for what I saw that evening in the front room. The wife lay up against the far wall of the room. It was the first time I had seen a dead person, and there was no question of the diagnosis. She had a bloody hole mid-chest the size of a tea plate, and an exit wound three times that size. I was too shocked to faint, and the image is still back there somewhere in my brain. I was not a sheriff, not a doctor, and not a county prosecutor, but I could still see and think. There were facts. An unpleasant, unpopular wife, the victim... The less-than-grief-stricken husband, either a very tough guy or someone with more story to tell. The general knowledge that the doctor was the proud owner of a double-barreled, over-and-under Holland and Holland 12-gauge shotgun, what looked to me, just a kid, like a chest wound commensurate with two barrels firing at once, and considerable discussion among my dad, the sheriff, and the bereaved husband. The sheriff announced in the room that night, and again publicly and officially later, that it was an unfortunate accident. 
the end. I wondered ever afterwards and to the present day what really happened. There were no fingerprints or GSR examinations, crime scene photos, no arrest, no indictment, no trial. It was a mystery to me, even if it was apparently not one to anyone else. I have to say that that mystery, like many other of the interesting life's experiences of mine, served to turn me into a writer of stories, 42 novels and counting. They are mostly historical fiction and action-adventure with some secret and mysterious autobiographical snippets thrown in for spice. I grew up and added mysteries and stories. Here's one. It is autobiographical with names and places altered to protect the guilty. It was a regular day in the clinic, nothing to alter or illuminate our times. Early in the afternoon, a 25-year-old man came to see me complaining of low-grade, constantly present global headaches. It would not have been all that exciting, since headache is the most common symptom bringing patients to see doctors, except for the plain film skull x-ray he carried. The film was normal except for a softball-sized, calcified mass lesion in the front of his cranial vault. The diagnosis was as easy as it gets, an ant mini in surgical jargon. He had a huge, benign, slow-growing prefrontal meningioma with a craniotomy, brain surgery. It was completely curable, and the young man could resume his regular life and never have to worry about it again. When I started my practice, scheduling the surgery would have been simplicity itself, Call the OR and find an empty space on my schedule. Right. But that day was in the new era. Hi, I said. This is Dr. Douglas, and I want to schedule a craniotomy ASAP this week. Not an emergency. What insurance does he have? None. I plan to do it pro bono, and I presume our nonprofit hospital will do the same. Wrong. No insurance, no admission or surgery. Sorry, Doc. Don't shoot the messenger. Not to be deterred, I contacted all the other hospitals in the area and got the same message. No insurance, no admission, no surgery. Thanks for calling. No problem. The University Neurosurgery Training Program would love to have such a big case, one a chief resident was unlikely to have the opportunity to do in his or her entire training program. I called the head of the training program, glad to have a way to save my young patient. Hi, I said. This is Carl down in Podunk. Have I got a great case for your chief resident? Hold on a second, Carl. I only have one question. Does the patient have insurance? No, why does that matter? We have to operate on this man. Think of in terms of the Hippocratic Oath. No can do. Did you ever hear the old dictum, no admission, no surgery? I had indeed. So, end of discussion. I could not, for the life of me, find anyone to get the young man his operation. I couldn't do it at my house on the kitchen table, so I sent him on his way, sorrowing, both of us. The mystery is this. How in the world did we ever get to such a state in the delivery of medical care in the United States of America... And what happened to the poor guy? I never saw nor heard from him again. If you have any information, contact me, please. The event has festered like an incurable sore in my psyche ever since. I am genuine when I see this is a mystery. I have traveled extensively around the world as a medical humanitarian, and in several hundred hospitals I dealt with, I did not have such a reception ever. I do not think American medicine is racist, sexist, ageist, or any otherist. But the effect of the dictum is both inadvertently elitist, negative wallet check, no insurance, no admission, and economically unsound. Our ERs are overwhelmed and cannot turn away anyone for the flimsy reason that they do not have the cash and they do not have the insurance. The ERs go broke. The domino effect hits the hospitals and finally, we the people take the hit because our secret or unseen or uncared about national debt 
goes up to billions plus a day in interest. Someday that will all add up to real money, and we will have to do something about it. But for now, I suppose our reluctance to care for the poor and uninsured will simply have to remain a mystery, and so will the fate of my lost young patient. Let me take a short break. Mysterious Podcast is sponsored by Author Masterminds and Readers and Writers Book Club. We invite you to join the club, where you can chat with Author Masterminds, read free content pieces and serialized books, and buy books at 50% off the list price. Please check Mysterious show notes for links to the book club and Author Masterminds. There is a mysterious hill in the northeastern corner of South Africa that is laden with gold archaeological artifacts and precious gems, several fortunes worth. It is, to say the least, difficult to get to and to find. Over time, a very few fortunate hunters and curators from museums around the world have visited and taken objects. Among those objects, now sitting in the British Museum and others, there are gold and iron, ivory, wood, carved freshwater snail and mussel shells, and ostrich eggshell beads used for glass beads, and cloth found atop Mapumgubwe Hill, Hill of the Jackals. Near the confluence of the Shash and Limpopo rivers, in the Limpopo province of South Africa, on the borders of Zimbabwe and Botswana, lies the Mapungubwe, where an Iron Age society, the Zizo Leokwe community, first settled in 900 to 1000 CE. By 1030 to 1220 CE, a shift in regional economic and socio-political changes gave rise to the new nearby settlement, and finally, by 1220 to 1290 CE, a ruling class emerged, and with that class, the first southern African state came into being at Mapungubwe Hill. By 1300 CE, Mapungubwe was abandoned until it was discovered in the 19th century. However, local knowledge of Mapungubwe has been recorded from oral histories, thus supporting ethnographic and historical evidence about the awareness of Mapungubwe as a sacred hill. The kingdom of Mapungubwe, circa 1075 to circa 1220, was a medieval state in South Africa located at the confluence of the Shash and Limpopo rivers, south of Great Zimbabwe. The name appears to mean Hill of Jackals, or Stone Monuments, in oral traditions. The kingdom was the first stage in a development that would culminate in the creation of the Kingdom of Zimbabwe in the 13th century. And with gold trading links to Rapta and Kisiwani on the African east coast, the kingdom of Mapungubwe lasted about 80 years, and at its height, the capital's population was about 5,000 people. Mapungubwean society is presumed by archaeologists to be the first class-based social system in southern Africa. That is, its leaders were separated from and higher in rank than its inhabitants. Mapungubwe's architecture and spatial arrangement also provide the earliest evidence for sacred leadership in southern Africa. Life in Mapungubwe was centered on family and farming. Special sites were created for initiation ceremonies, household activities, and other social functions. Cattle lived in kraals located to the residents' houses. Most speculation about society continues to be based upon the remains of the buildings, since the Mapungubweans left no written record. The kingdom was likely divided into three-tiered hierarchy, with the commoners inhabiting low-lying sites, district leaders occupying small hilltops, and the capital at Mapungubwe Hill as the supreme authority. Elites within the kingdom were buried in hills. Royal wives lived in their own area, away from the king. Important men maintained prestigious homes on the outskirts of the capital. 
This type of spatial division occurred first at Mapungubwe. The growth in population at Mapungubwe seems to have led to full-time specialists in ceramics, especially pottery. Gold objects were uncovered in elite burials on the Royal Hill, Mapungubwe Hill. On New Year's Eve, 1932, ESJ Van Gran, a local farmer and prospector, and his son, a former student of the University of Pretoria, set out to follow up on a legend he had heard about. According to an article published in 1985, translated from the Afrikaans text, remains of a rock fort located on top of the hill were under investigation, dated back to the 11th century. Some of the items discovered were put on display at the Department of Archaeology at the University of Pretoria. This archaeological site can be attributed to the Bukalanga Kingdom, which comprised the Kalanga people, from northeast Botswana and western central southern Zimbabwe, the Nambia, south of the Zambezi Valley, and the Vavenda, in the northeast of South Africa. The Mapungubwe collection of artifacts found at the archaeological site is housed in the Mapungubwe Museum in Pretoria. The residents of Mapungubwe were, like the people of Thulamela, ancestors of the Shona people of southern Africa. The first people in Mapungubwe were early Iron Age settlers. They lived there from about 1000 CE to 1300 CE, and around 1500 CE, Iron Age subsistence farmers also settled there. Their existence is confirmed by the discovery by archaeologists of a few pot shards identified as early Iron Age pottery, indicating that they manufactured their own pottery and metal tools. Like the societies of Thulamela and Great Zimbabwe, Mapungubwe was structured along social classes. This may be seen from the location of people's houses separating leaders and commoners. The elite lived at the top of Mapungubwe, and their followers stayed at the bottom of the hill and in the surrounding area. A garbage site where commoners lived indicated that rich and poor ate very different foods. Funeral traditions were also different. The rich had a graveyard at the top of the hill with a beautiful view of the region. Twenty-four skeletons were unearthed on Mapungubwe Hill. Only eleven were available for analysis. The rest disintegrated upon touch or as soon as they were exposed to light and air. Recent genetic studies found the first two skeletons to be of Khoisan descent and thought to be a king or queen of Mapungubwe. Despite this latest information, the remains were all buried in the traditional Bantu burial position, sitting with legs drawn to the chest, arms folded around the front of the knees, and they were facing west. Three of the people found in this cemetery were buried upright in a sitting position, indicating they were royalty. They were also buried with gold and copper ornaments and glass beads, showing the people of Mapungubwe to have been a skilled people in working with gold. Golden rhinoceroses and other golden objects were symbols of royal power and political leadership. Ceremoniously buried high-class individuals yielded up skeletons. Skeleton 10, male, was buried with his hand grasping a golden scepter. The skeleton 14, female, was buried with at least a hundred gold wire bangles around her ankles and there were at least a thousand gold beads in her grave. The last gold burial, male, who was most probably the king, was buried in a shallow grave with a headrest and three objects made of gold foil tacked into a wooden core, depicting a bull, scepter, and rhinoceros. No deep digging has been done on the mountaintop, which is sacred to the descendants of the Mapungubwe people, who have protected the site for centuries. Part of the mystery surrounding the hill is that there does not appear to be any way to access it, save mountain climbing expertise and gear. That is apparently not true, and the locals know about secret crevices and openings that permit people to see the location. By all reports, anyone who gets there can find old pottery, shards, 
pieces of skeletons, gold beads, and occasional golden statuette artifacts to steal. The most important part of the mystery is how to excavate without being seen, to steal all the gold and get back to Europe or the United States unscathed. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to the Author Masterminds website and the Readers and Writers Book Club. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode of Mysterious, where my fellow authors and I explore mysteries in the world around us.